0: These are people that have had to go through such incredible hardships to give us a life of freedom and the ability to, to be on a podcast talking about Judaism. Like, that, that is such a privilege.
1: From the Jewish Food Society, I'm Amanda Dell. And this is Schmaltzy. Today on Schmaltzy, we're kicking off Season 2 with a special Passover episode featuring Jake Cohen. Jake is a New York City-based food writer, recipe developer, and bona fide TikTok star. His new book, Jew-ish, Reinvented Recipes from a Modern Mensch, is out now. We'll hear Jake's original live story from the stage, and then he'll meet me in the studio for a very personal and revealing conversation. Here's Jake from Jewish Food Society's first ever virtual Schmalzi event, where he shared his story with thousands of guests tuning in from all around the world.
0: After both swiping right, on January 1st, 2015, I met the nicest Jewish boy in the world. Alex was handsome, smart, and had absolutely no dietary restrictions. Then by the next week, we were already seeing each other about every day, and optimistically I made us Valentine's Day reservations, since it's very hard to get a table in New York City. But it paid off, and that night we made it official and began our journey as a young Jewish couple. About a month later, I get my daily call from my mother at about 7.30 in the morning, You see, you know how Jewish boys are close with their mothers. Well, we are very close. Like, this call is one of three or four calls I get a day from her close. Like, we live in the same apartment building close. This call was to talk about Seder, and she let me know that my Aunt Susie would be hosting first night, and she would be hosting second. Mom, I'm so excited for first night, and I can't wait to bring Alex, but second night we're doing with his family explaining that this year we were invited to celebrate with Alex's brother who hosts his wife's family. Silence on the other side of the line, followed by this drawn out, what? I could just feel the Jewish guilt oozing out of my cell phone speaker. There was really nothing I could say in this moment that would make her feel okay about this situation. I was just set up for failure. So I do as any good Jewish son would, I I deflect. I don't try to explain to her that Alex is an Iraqi Persian Jew and both of these Ashkenazi satyrs are going to be so foreign into him. I don't try to solve this problem of how we're going to split up the holidays. I just say what I always say. We'll talk about this later, which is code word for, for, I just, I can't fight about this anymore, but, but this is how it's going to be. We're standing outside my Aunt Susie's apartment and her famous brisket is already perfuming through the hallway. This is going to be the first time that Alex is in the same room with my entire family. We fall somewhere between like a marvelous Mrs. Maisel crazy and a a Seinfeld crazy, and it's well a lot. And I wasn't sure how he'd react. We walk in, and Susie's already yelling at my mother to get out of the kitchen because she's picking at the brisket. We sit down, and, and he gums down his first ever piece of gefilte fish, followed by my mother's yearly sermon. Can you believe how good it is? It's from Costco. Before the meal's even over, we start to fight over who gets to take home the leftovers. So honestly, it was perfect. It couldn't have gone any better. That was until she started asking, so we're really not going to see you tomorrow? Lamenting on how it's going to be her, my aunt Susie, and Jamie eating leftover brisket without her son who's abandoned her. And I was just exhausted and wondered if this guilt trip would replay every year for the rest of my life. The next night was just as magical. Alex's brother married a nice Ashkenazi girl, so we ate just as much gefilte fish, and the conversation quickly turned to the fact that we need to continue this tradition and join their family again next year. And while I was immediately met with this fuzzy feeling of being welcomed into this family, that quickly got overshadowed by the thought, like, oh shit, how am I gonna explain that to my mother? The next year, when the call for Seder came, she waited no time to drop the guilt. Well, you missed last year, so you can't possibly miss this year. Mom, you're, you're not the only one. Alex's sister-in-law wants us again this year, too, but we're declining both invitations, explaining that this year we are going to be celebrating second night with Alex's Aunt Diana for my first ever Mizrahic Seder. Just when I thought I had her, with communal disappointment on both sides, she dropped a bomb. Well can I come? I'm just one person. Honestly, she probably could have, but I just wasn't ready to expose my family's crazy to his, but I I can't tell her that. So I just fill up with Jewish guilt and say, I am sorry, you can't come. We'll talk about this later. When we showed up to Alex's Aunt Diana's for Seder, it was unlike anything I'd ever experienced, and yet still so Jewish. This was not a Costco gefilte fish event. Instead of the coarse meal I was accustomed to, this was an extravagant buffet of crispy Persian rice and Iraqi beet kubba, and my personal favorite, gourmet sabzi, this gorgeous Persian stew of beef stewed with dried limes and herbs and kidney beans. It was so delicious. At one point, everyone even started handing out scallions and we slapped each other while we sang Dayenu. I locked eyes with Alex and could just tell that we were both thinking the same thing. We were going to have to do this Seder again. So going into year three of Passover, I'm just already full of crippling anxiety. While the Seder call typically comes in around March, by January, my mother was already digging at Shabbat dinner. We need to have you for both nights this year. That's when Alex turned to her and said, yes. I looked in in just complete shock. And he says, well, why don't we do first night with you and second night with the families combined? My jaw just immediately clenches, and I just, I have to insert myself. And in an act of damage control, I I just said, we'll talk about this later. When we get out of this meal, it just, I break. Alex, why would you promise that? First of all, you know that if you tell my mother something like that, you know she will run with it. Second, we don't have a place. It's physically impossible to cram three Jewish families into one New York apartment. We're at this hinge of this blending of families and I felt responsible for its success or failure. Both sides are just riddled with divorce and we really don't have any examples of successful blending. But Alex could sense this and he grabbed my hand and he said, just trust me. Maybe you don't have to hold this burden by yourself. Maybe we can hold it together. So I decided to trust. I decided to trust my mother. And as if a gift from God, the next week, I got a call from Alex's aunt who let us know that her mother was actually going to be in Israel this year for Seder, leaving her apartment free for us to host both families in one place. And that night we gathered, and while there wasn't any Costco filta fish, there was beet kubba and tadik alongside a braised brisket that I made in the same style of my aunt's famous version. That Passover, we became one family. So the next year, I decided to take it one step further and also marry our dishes, making a brisket in the same style of gourmet sabzi, braising that hunk of beef with tons of dried lime and herbs and beans. It's just the perfect representation of this crazy Jewish family my husband and I have built.
1: Thank you so much, Jake, for joining us and sharing your story.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: It's on one level about having a complicated relationship with your mom. But something that struck me in the story was that you still live in the same building as her. I think it's,
0: when we say complicated relationship, I think it's less about our relationship because our relationship is wonderful. It's more so about my relationship with myself and that ability to want to expose that kind of very raw aspect of your dynamics with your family and the way your family acts with
1: other people. You touched on this a little bit, but the other theme in your story that i think was very pervasive was jewish guilt have you found that the guilt is different coming from your ashkenazi family versus alex's mizrahi family have there was there like a story that you can quickly tell us about yeah, you know how how guilt played you know a role in his family versus your family so at its core in
0: terms of the mother son dynamic it's the same except for the fact that Alex gets guilt from his mother for not calling him. My mother's already calling me four times a day. So if I even pick up 50% of the calls, I'm I'm doing <laughs> A-OK. But I would say one of the, the funny things that happened when we started blending families is this Persian cultural tradition called Taroth. And it literally is hospitality squared, like uh, to the extreme. And what it is, it's pretty much like this banter back and forth when you have someone over. So let's say you're you're a guest in my home. So you come over and there is, I don't know, some book. You're going through my bookshelf and you see this cookbook and you're like, oh my God, I've been dying to get this cookbook and cook from it. Tarov is me going to you like, oh my God, take it. Have it. Please cook from it. It's been on my bookshelf forever. I, I never open it. You should take it. Your response should be, oh, no, 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 I can't. It's I'm extending hospitality as an act of of graciousness, but you're supposed to decline it because I'm not being serious. I'm just like, out out, out of just really good hospitality, I'm offering it to you. There are going to be moments in which I'm, I'm sincere about it, but you should never just say, oh, my God, thank you. You should say, no, I couldn't possibly take this. And the tariff is the back and forth. And there are moments in which it is, Acceptable, and then there are moments when people call out like, "No tarof, you have to come over. I need to host you. You have to take this, all of that because it's that idea of you want to. You always want to do for others. You always want to give, be generous. But sometimes you're not a hundred percent sincere about it. So I think that was the very interesting thing. My mother-in-law, Rabina. Uh, tells, talks about this story about she had this boyfriend that she brought over to um, one of her aunt's uh, houses in LA and he was like admiring this Persian rug and she said oh take it and he literally walked out with this rug and was like no you have to give it back that wasn't serious and I just think it's funny because it's something that's just so culturally Persian that Ashkenazi just wouldn't be able to comprehend that because we're very much from a place of of we mean – we're very, like, succinct. Like, we mean it. It's either yes or no. And if it's a yes, yeah, take it. Or else it's, like, can you believe you didn't take it? The, their response would be, can you believe they took it because you were supposed to say no? Our response would be, can you believe they didn't take it? I extended this thing and it's not good enough for them? Like, that. to me, that's the main cultural difference between Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi dynamics and, and Mizrahic.
1: Was there any other cultural differences that really struck you initially? Right. Rice. rice. Okay, my talk to us Susie about it.
0: Still, still, like I'm Ashkenazi. I can't eat rice. Can't shoot, She had to, to. Can't eat rice. Sorry, Ashkenazi here. Can't eat rice. And I think, like, what the? Didn't the rabbi just announce if a, a year or two ago that like, no, actually everyone can have rice now. But still, it's like my grandmother. Alex can have rice. You cannot have rice. Like she'll she'll still be so determined on this. I don't know this reasoning for what we can and can't eat based on. And my, I guess my response is, we're all Jewish. We're all celebrating the same holiday. There doesn't need to be a divide. I don't think there should be a divide. It's about just normalizing different cultural aspects, normalizing different foods. I think so much of growing up in America as an Ashkenazi Jew is really having... Ashkenazi Jewish food normalized, it, it, it's not uncommon for people to know what bapka was, for people to know what hamantashen are, to get rugala at an Italian bakery. Like there's there no Jews there, but they're still making rugala for some reason. The idea of having kubba or, or gorma sabzi or any of these stews that are so different, so incredibly delicious, but different. And and I think our generation is really the first one that's, that's coming at this with this open mind and open stomach to be like, bring it on. Whatever you choose to celebrate, I want to know about it. I want to introduce it into my family, into my home, because that is celebrating Ju- That's that's celebrating Judaism, is being inclusive.
1: Clearly, that's something we are aligned with yes. at Jewish Food Society, and that's what we're doing. We're building an archive of family recipes from around the world. And we featured your mother-in-law's Iraqi recipes on the
0: archive. Well, the funny thing is, is it's like – it's this conglom- it's this mashup. This is a dish from this family, and these are the places they were. Because one of the things that I've really, really, really fell in love with when it comes to Jewish food are the food ways and the fact that, like, Rabina is Iraqi, but she grew up in Iran and Israel. So the way she cooks Iraqi food is with a lot of Persian ingredients. The way she cooks Persian food is with a lot of Iraqi ingredients. And to me that's what makes it jewish it's because of the fact that these are recipes that are rooted in the movement of jews because of the farhood because of the revolution because of of all of these terrible terrible things that have happened to us as as a people have dictated the way we've had to travel and the way that we've had to bring and transform our recipes i think that that's that's to me what makes jewish food so interesting
1: for rubina's recipes how do you how did you feel about being like the protector of those recipes and the person that was moving those recipes forward because what you shared with us on the archive is that no one else really showed an interest in preserving those recipes and learning them
0: i get very emotional about it i like i really do it it just to me there's something super important and I think of my grandmother who was a hidden child in the Holocaust. I think of my mother-in-law, Rabina, whose recipes are featured, having to t- telling me the story at the kitchen table of when her and her family had to pack one suitcase, lock their door in Iran, and walk away from everything, never to see it again. This is one generation away, two generations away. These are people that that have had to go through such incredible hardships to give us a life of freedom and the ability to to be on a podcast talking about Judaism like that that is such a privilege the least the least we can do is ask about the stories find out where they were find out what they ate you don't have to practice shabbat and and follow all the rules but you should know what they ate on shabbat something that came up a lot is this idea of like as we go through the holidays especially in this past year of the pandemic we spent a lot of time um, in Florida with her, and we spent Rosh Hashanah together. And we would go through and i was like, what was that like in Iran celebrating Rosh Hashanah? And she's telling me these stories of how her father would dress her up. The father was, how it would work is the fathers would dress up the girls and they would all get like really dolled up. And then you'd go around house to house. The mothers would stay and they would cook this like table of food and there'd be like dried fruit and nuts and little candies and that was the tradition for Rosh Hashanah. And this is the first time I'm hearing about it. Alex and his sister, they've never heard, they weren't even there. They they still don't, they've never heard of this. I am the one who's now kn- knowing and preserving all of these stories about what they ate, what they said. And my biggest fear is that when some of these family members come to that realization, so many of these recipes will have been lost with the members who, who have passed. And that's why I think like time is of the essence and- you got to just talk to everyone, get everything written down. All these recipes have never been written down. They're just they're either like scribbles on notepads that are completely just like illegible or you would just like do what I do and I just cooked with them and followed them around with measuring cups and a scale and transcribed it and then figured it out. That's what I did with the Iraqi beet kubba. And like to me, that was one of the most important recipes in my book because of the fact that now the entire family will get to make kubba. And yeah, it might not be like your family's kubba, but this is our family's kubba. And that's all that matters.
1: Bring me to the first time when you served one of Rubina's dishes to her. (laughs) Oh, my God. I cooked a Shabbat dinner for everyone. And it was
0: at Alex's brother's apartment. And... I made Tariq and gorme sabzi, and then Rabin was like, "What can I?" She's like, she insisted on helping, obviously, and she made the masal which is like a cucumber yogurt sauce, and shirazi salad, which is like a Arabic tomato cucumber salad. And we sit down, and she tries the gourmet sabzi, and she goes, "Fuck you! This is better than mine." Um, and it was just like there it was—it was always this this level of of levity to all of our interactions and how this cooking together has brought us so close of of learning these things. Like that's how I learn it. I have to just follow her in the kitchen. That's 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 it. One of the funniest things that I've realized in all of the recipes I've done of hers, I've always been like, why isn't it it's like they're all so delicious, but there's just something different about when I make it. And it wasn't until this last year when we were cooking together that i realized it's because she's been adding she adds awesome to everything which is like this powdered bullion that's just like full it's like msg she just she's been adding ms like all of this like powdered bullion to every dish she makes and that's why it tastes so much better and then i just realized like, oh that's the secret ingredient i'm not doing anything wrong it's uh, there was
1: just something hidden that was her secret ingredient That was yeah. the
0: secret ingredient to everything a little bit of awesome this is how they do it this is how it's done if you want to make jewish food you have to expand your pantry that's it so I'm at this place now where it's like, I want to know exactly how they do it.
1: Let's flip the script and get into another food from the Seder. Gefilte fish. Gefilte fish. How did you prepare Alex for his first taste? I mean,
0: he, he's a very adventurous eater. I will say he, does, he doesn't he does have a lot of things that he he won't eat. So for me, so much of it was just exploring Jewish food. I think the first one was actually babka because he had never had babka. He never heard of it when we met. So in the same way that I came at his food with an open mind, he did the same thing for mine. And guess what? A lot of gefilte fish is bad. A lot of gefilte fish is good. I mean,
1: Costco, I'll say Kirkland brand gefilte fish is very good. It's very good. Has Costco always played a role in your family holiday?
0: I mean, it's played a role in every Ashkenazi Jewish family, I think, in... In America, um, but yes, for it's it's always the same. It's like, oh, can you? Everyone's looking for ease, and everyone's looking for quality. And when you can find a gefilte fish that is good enough and easy to buy at Costco, it's like it's 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 a just completely incredible revelation.
1: I'm bringing us back to the seder again, and and I want to understand why you were so scared to have your mom come to Alex's family seder. Like, why did that strike fear into your heart?
0: I think that again, this was the first blending of families, and and I wanted I wanted to have so much control. It's very hard to have control at a large family function. It's just it's just this more difficult. And I think that I wanted to ease everyone in, and we had done a very small, um, we had done a very small rosh hashanah meeting, and it was um, it was fine. But there was... Uh,
1: <laughs> it was fine is like the equivalent of like, we'll talk about this later.
0: 100%. 100%. Everyone acts like they're the ones that are coming from this crazy family, but we're all the same. Everyone has their own stuff. And, and, and it's just, I, I think that was, it, it was preemptive worry that quickly dissipated because I realized I was overreacting.
1: In this story, you were pretty upset with Alex that he just automatically said that your mom could come and that you were going to do a joint Seder.
0: One of my favorite aspects of our relationship is the way that we balance each other and kind of come to bat for each other's families in the same way that I'll intervene with him if there are potential conflicts with his family and his sister and his mother or any like that. He does the same with me. And he does a lot of talking down my sister and myself (laughs) when we're interacting with our mother or when my sisters interacting with other members of my family and i think it's 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 of course i was i'm always going to be quick to to be like no 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 i'm right in this moment but he's coming as this person who who's looking in and can have a little less bias and a little less emotion coloring the what he says and how he responds and how he thinks through so
1: i'm always going to say he was right He's always right. He's, he's Again, he's my better half. Love it. There was something that you shared in the story that was really honest, in my opinion. Um, you said that both families were riddled with divorce. And there weren't really good examples of blending. Um, do you think maybe that was part of the reason why Alex really wanted the joint seder to kind of change that narrative?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think so much of it is... Like I talked about earlier, in terms of our responsibility as this first generation of freedom against these really terrible things, I think a common theme in, in Judaism and Jewish culture, separate from religion, is inherited trauma. And we look back. And we have a lot of conversations about our family and the way people act and, and marriages. And it was it was a different time. People acted differently. A lot of there were a lot of influences within my family that affected. The way, like, I mean, I'll be very candid. Like, I think of my grandmother's parents and who were both in the camps. And her father, who was continually beaten in the head, had brain trauma and ended up becoming very much an alcoholic and abusive. And her mother took that family and came to New York as a single mother supporting three kids And I just think about those situations, and it's not like it's uncommon. They're always unique. But at the end of the day, things like the Holocaust, things like like fleeing a revolution, they affect you. They affect the way you make connections with others. They affect the way you raise your children and and your values and and so many things that I think we look back with this fear that history will repeat itself because that's always the theme when it comes to to family – but I think we come at this also as a queer couple, which is a, a part of the story that I think is super important because I think it takes a lot of pressure off. We get to approach the system and turn it on its head. Listen, we're also two men and any society, I would say, like American Jewelry is patriarchal and there is a level of misogyny that is – been built in for generations. And I think that the idea of we are these two golden sons that are are blending families, it's a lot more well-respected and and welcomed. And I would think that that's part of the conversation that we need to have about just how we treat future generations and children and, and put values on that because I think that has to change. But I think at its core... We're doing something non-traditional. There, there are no expectations that you have to marry so many of, of his his cousins. Like, oh, you should marry a – they're Persian. You should marry a Persian Jew. You should, marry, you, you should marry a Jew, period. Like all of these things, all these like requirements that so many parents put on their kids. We already like – we already don't have to follow those rules because we're gay. We don't have to – we don't have to – we're already going to disappoint someone. Uh, I, I think that – once that is kind of breached, then we really get to just make our own rules. And I think everyone comes at the situation a little less guarded, which is how all of these relationships have mm. been forged so quickly. that so people are coming with less expectations, less guarded, and they're able to just actually realize, oh, we're one beautiful family now.
1: Your brisket that you talk about at the very end of the story, the blended brisket, was there pushback on either side of the family? about, you know, creating a new recipe.
0: I think the fun thing about creating this recipe was it's not crazy. It's the only difference is instead of stew meat, you're using an entire brisket. But every time I explain it to someone who's Persian Jewish, it's like it's like their mind is blown. Like, "Oh my god, I can't believe you thought of that." The purpose of Seder is gathering loved ones, family friends and having a meaningful discussion about systems of oppression and the value of freedom. I think the beauty of having foods that are connected to either family or tradition—it's just the icing on the cake. But it's not necessary. None of it is necessary. It's all symbolism. But you don't need that symbolism to be having this discussion, getting the value out of all of these traditions. With that, every family is going to be different. My mother—the first time she heard about the orange on the seder plate, the she was like, "She's like, what? What do you? you know, we're not putting more stuff on the seder plate." And then I think as you s- slowly start to get through to people of the why we do things and not just taking things at face value, everyone's like, that's such an incredible idea. That's such an incredible addition. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Noth- there's nothing in the Torah that you have to serve brisket at, at Passover. Like,
1: So so choose your own adventure. Thank you so much, Jake, for joining us and sharing your story.
0: My pleasure. Happy to talk about jew stuff anytime you want
1: <laughs> happy passover
0: happy passover
1: and mazel tov on your book
0: thank you thank you
1: Schmalti is a production of jewish food society made with love in new york city also we're a little new be sure to subscribe and rate us on the apple podcast app or wherever you get this show Schmalti is produced and edited by free time media our executive producer is Nama Shafi, and our theme music is by Yuval Semo. Just a quick reminder, we want to hear from you. Send us your thoughts, comments, or questions about the show. Just record a voice memo right on your phone and email it to hi at jewishfoodsociety.org. Maybe you'll get a cameo on a future episode. Until next time, I'm your host, Amanda Dell.